Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. This is J.J. Cooper here with Ben Badler. And this is not the greatest day in baseball by any stretch, but we're recording this uh, a couple of hours after the Mitchell Report came out. And kind of there's a feeling like, if political reporters had the star report where they were pouring through it, you know, and trying to get everything out of it as quickly as they could, kind of that feel a little bit today for, for us baseball reporters, it seems like. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting names on the list and a lot of, I think more, almost as interesting as the names, probably even more so is the incredible amount of evidence, uh, behind it and how seemingly well supported a lot of the, uh, the reporting was on it by the Mitchell, uh, in the Mitchell report. There's a lot of paper trails that, uh, really surprised me that players are willing to put their own names and their own bank accounts on there. There's a lot of uh, really solid evidence in there to to really do some damage to a lot of these players' reputations. It, it, it did spell out like when you're seeing you know FedEx receipts and checks and and all that. I mean, it's really it's for once we're not hearing the old adage of well, I took a a supplement and it must have been tainted. I mean, this spells it out here in. You know, I mean, we're getting in this report. We're getting that I injected on these days. I injected Roger Clemens with Windstraw in his buttocks. You know, and we saw the effects immediately. And and it's it is it's exacting in its detail, but it is also. I mean, it, it's kind of that. It almost has a feel of that tip of the iceberg. We're talking about three sources here that we're able to get all these names out of essentially a clubby and a trainer. What would have been, you know, what would this report have even been if everyone, if there was like this blanket immunity where everyone actually felt free to talk? Right, and this, of course, is in no way a comprehensive list of, or some kind of master list of all of the players who have used performance-enhancing drugs throughout baseball, and that's pretty clear that, I mean, George uh, George Mitchell didn't have any subpoena power here. He was basically just going off what he has here, and the the amount of evidence that he has, and the the way he lays it out, I think there's a lot of concern, too, going into the uh, before the Mitchell report was released, you know, is this going to be a lot of hearsay? Is this going to be a lot of oh, just a lot of speculation without any real hard, solid evidence? No, this is a lot of very solid evidence evidence working against these players here. And, and in almost every case in the report, what you see is we then confronted player X with this knowledge, and he declined to comment. Mm-hmm. And you see that over and over and over, which. Makes sense. The the players' association basically told the players don't cooperate with this, but it at the same time it is kind of adding into that credibility of this report that they did give a chance for every player who is named in this to rebut it, and very few of them took the opportunity to attempt to rebut it. Which I don't want to, you know. I mean, these guys seem, you know, the evidence seems pretty clear. But if you were completely innocent of of these charges. It seems like it'd be very hard to just sit back and go, no, 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 you know, I don't want to comment on it. Mm-hmm. Right, and certainly, I'm sure the uh, the MLB Players Association sent out a letter to the to the players and the players association, telling them probably not to cooperate 
with with the report and telling of the possible negative ramifications of it. And it's certainly understandable why they might not want to cooperate with them. But I think the next step probably going forward is, is Congress going to look at this now and is Congress going to intervene and say, all right, we need to take another deeper look at this. Are we going to have to, are they going to go after some of these players who are named in the report? And are they going to, are the players now going to have to talk to Congress about it and possibly face some more serious challenges uh, for their own personal lives and uh, for baseball as well in terms of what what they would have faced had they cooperated with George Mitchell and, and his report? I'm imagining a lot of pleading the fifth if the, uh, if they are called to, oh yeah called called up to you know to a congressional hearing the one of the things I thought though that was very apt of what you know George Mitchell said was he didn't he reported about the past, but his emphasis and his recommendations were let's not get too hung up on the past here I mean it's clear from this baseball and let's be honest it's not just baseball baseball just did the best job baseball was slow to get around to talking about its performance-enhancing drug problem. However, baseball now has probably done the best job of exposing its problem. This is throughout all sports, really. But baseball now has spelled out, here's our problem in the past. But what Mitchell is saying is, okay, now that we have this, how can we fix it in the future? I mean, do you think this is going to be... Are we going to see this as the landmark moment that starts cleaning up the game? Or is this going to be a report that, you know, when we look back on it five years from now, the same problems are going to be out there. It's just we have this report that spelled out the problems of the 90s. Well, I think I think it's starting with the heavier suspensions, I think that probably started it. Once the there was starting to get more media scrutiny over it, I think that probably started it. I do think the Mitchell report will be a, a big factor in that. Uh, one thing that I think you can see in the Mitchell report as you look down the list of names it's largely American names on the list. There's a, there aren't as many Latin American players who, uh, who were implicated on this list. Yet certainly, uh, what goes on in Latin America is not something that they really could have found out much about, given the sources that they talked to. There's stuff that goes on there that they probably uh, right. might might never find out about. Right. You'd have to find a Dominican trainer, you know, trainer from down the Dominican, or you know, talk get the records not from Orlando pharmacy, but from a Dominican pharmacy to find out some of that evidence. Right, and, and good luck with that. Yeah, good, yeah not, but, not, not likely. But I do, well, what you were saying before about the Mitchell Report looking forward, I think that the names on this list aren't necessi- weren't necessarily the focal point of the of the investigation. The names were more just, and the stories behind it were just the evidence that Mitchell was using to support his case and to use as evidence uh, for what has happened in the past. And to look, forward, look going forward, say, this is what's been happening, and now this is what we need to do about it going forward. So I do, I do respect that about uh, the way he went about his report there. And, and the thing that he seems to be spelling out, I, I, I thought some of his recommendations, I don't know if they'll ever be enacted because a lot of them would require the cooperation of the Players Association. And let's not discount, I mean, the Players Association has been rather obstructionist about performance-enhancing drugs unless it's getting pushed by, essentially they eventually cave when a overwhelming majority of the players said, look, we're getting taking a beating on this. You have to, we have to adapt. Mm-hmm. But a lot of his recommendations kind of spelled out, look, just because we have the steroid testing and all now, don't in any way think that we're on top of this problem because all it's meant is we've shifted from steroids to HGH. One of the things I thought was really in, 
interesting that he recommended is is we need to have essentially uh, the best way I can think of it is it's almost like a MLB drug czar. You would have this guy who his job would be to track down any rumors he hears about potential drug use, and if he can find evidence on it, that guy gets suspended whether he tests positive for steroids or not. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever see that happen, but it does seem like it's about the only effective way that you're really going to stay on top of this because everyone agrees we don't have a way to test for HGH right now. I mean, maybe you keep the samples and maybe down the road, you know, an HGH test shows up in five years, maybe we we can go back and find out. But it, it does seem like the current way we're doing it can only go so far. Does that, you know, do you agree? I do agree, and a lot of it is a lot of the designer steroids that are coming out, and as science improves and improves, yes, the testing will get better, but, you know, the people who make these steroids and who make the designer steroids and the HGH and all of the other ramific- uh, other new new drugs that are going to come out, they're going to be one step ahead is the problem. So, I, but I do think that that's the, the possible solution of having a, a drug czar, uh, like like Mitchell mentioned, would be one step because it does need to be independent uh, or as independent as possible in the testing yeah, and, I mean, in, in, and in the oversight of it. And that's something that they've not had in the past. Mm-hmm. It does need to be kind of separated out. Um, now to put kind of the, the Baseball America spin on this, we're working on a story. Larry, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. We're working on a story right now to post up on the website, uh, baseballamerica.com, talking about Going beyond, you know, we get major league names here, although a lot of these guys are kind of that, that 4A guy who spends a lot of time in the minor leagues. But one of the things that scouts and scouting directors are talking about now that the report's out is kind of this hope that, that this may change kind of the culture of baseball at, you know, at, for the younger player. Hopefully there may be some you know, mind. You know, some change of mindset of whether you need to use performance-enhancing drugs for the the college guy, for the high school guy, and for the minor leaguer. And I don't know if that's going to come from this, but it is clear from talking to scouts. It seems like that nowadays people are no longer hiding their head in the sand about performance-enhancing drugs when they're scouting a player, or when you're looking at a player in the minor leagues. I mean. Doesn't it seem like that that nowadays it's become a part of the uh, the scouting report instead of something that ten years ago wasn't? Oh, absolutely! And even in the Mitchell report, you could see with not just scouting reports for for younger players, but for older players. When the according to the George Mitchell's reports, uh, when the Red Sox were looking at Eric Gagne in 2006, they specifically mentioned steroids and Theo Epstein, according to uh, the reports in the Mitchell report, said uh, asked one of his scouts. What have you heard about Eric Gagne? We know the Dodgers think he's a juicer, uh, in his words. Uh, and then the scout responded, yes, that we do believe uh, that, that Gagne was on steroids. And, it, and the scout continued to state all these reasons why it's, it could really hurt him. And the Red Sox didn't sign him then, but and they, they actually yeah, ended up crazy. trading for him. But in terms of amateur players, yeah, it's, uh, hopefully it does something to deter the, a lot of the younger players from using, the high school players, the college players, because... At that age, it's especially unsafe for them to be using it. Uh, obviously, they're in a, a growth phase for their own bodies. It's, it can be extremely damaging for them. So it could do that. Or, you know, the, on the other hand, they could look at this list and say, wow, these are all the guys who are using it. I mean, it's, it seems like it's pretty prevalent. I mean, why, why shouldn't I use it? And, and that is one of the things that, that jumps out from the names on this list is that 
you definitely see both sides of the coin. You see the 4A guy who clearly was getting those steroids because he said, okay, this will be the difference between me being a big leaguer and a minor leaguer. But there also clearly are some names on here of guys. I mean, Roger Clemens was going to be a Hall of Famer mm-hmm. without ever, you know, probably using a thing. And he's on this list. You know, Andy Pettit was, uh, you know, one of the better pitchers in baseball on this list. I mean, we do see, it seems like we, it spans the entire spectrum from the guy who's fighting for that big league job to that guy who's a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. They're all, they're, they're, some of all of them on this list, it seems like. Yeah, and it just, it really encompasses everybody. And I don't think that's really, really any kind of a shock to anybody who's, who's been following a lot of this stuff. It's just, it's hitters, it's pitchers, it's guys who are young, guys who are old. There's obviously, for those 4A guys, like you mentioned, just a huge economic incentive for them. You're a 26, 27-year-old guy in AAA making fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. You're trying to crack into the major leagues. If, you, if you're in the majors for a year, I mean, you get a $250,000 raise right there. That's, I mean, in a non-baseball setting, if, if any job that takes you from $60,000 to at least $300,000, that's, that's an enormous raise. I think any, a lot of people would do some... Uh, some some other things to do to get that kind of a raise for that it, it that is kind of money. It is definitely you can see where it would be very tempting. Oh yeah, whether the rule was there or not, you can see you know where it would be very tempting, and we'll see if this changes that. I mean, maybe now you know the risk of public scorn, you know, maybe that's the incentive that keeps people from doing it because you know a lot of guys who really when they were doing performance-enhancing drugs, never thought that they would ever get caught, have been exposed now. I mean, there's got to be mount now. Can you imagine if you're that guy who did use performance-enhancing drugs? Say you used them in 2001, 2002, and you don't know if your name's going to pop up on this or not. I mean, it, today had to be a, a a pretty frightening day. Oh, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were plenty, of, plenty of guys out there who were uh, breathing a collective <laughs> sigh of relief once this report came out and their name was not on the list. Um, I think another winner uh, in the... <laughs> Today is actually a, an executive, Dan Duquette, who, after, who never, who didn't uh, re-sign Roger Clemens after his uh, tenure with the Red Sox, he left to go to Toronto, and now, according to these reports, it seems like that's when Roger Clemens first started using steroids, according to the reports, and then his career really, uh, he was obviously a great on pitcher on pace for a Hall of Fame career at that point, but uh, the, the move by Duquette looks a lot better right now. Right in hindsight, after today. Right. It now looks like maybe it's defensible because, yes, he was on the decline in his career, and then, you know, he Barry bonds his way to, you know, to another 10 years. (laughs) I I like that term. Because that's really about the same time frame we're talking about. You're talking about two guys who are Hall of Famers who all of a sudden, the end part of their career doesn't match what a normal baseball player does right and their bodies are slowing down and they they probably say something that sounds like what what's going on i'm well ugh, i'm kind of i'm going on the downhill of my career even though they're great players and the downhill for them is just still great but they're not they can't do what they used to do they're used to pushing themselves to the limit and their bodies are slowing down and they want to be able to still push themselves forwards and that's that extra edge that they can still get at that point in their careers well it is. It's a fascinating report. It'll take us a while to fully digest it. All four hundred and I think nine pages is what I counted it as. Quite a bit. But it is definitely a a, a fascinating look at basically the past ten years of baseball. Um, 
you know, not not a it's not an exciting day for baseball in any stretch today, but hopefully it is kind of the start of something new for baseball. And that's 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 the hope. I mean, because if you work at Baseball America, we all you know, and if you listen to this podcast, there aren't probably a whole lot of people listening to this who don't love baseball. And you know, this is kind of the day that we you know maybe baseball had to go through to kind of get to the other side of the mountain on this. It's all it's almost like a, an addiction where the first step is just kind of admitting the problem and trying to open up to the past and and showing what you have done was wrong and then saying, all right, now what's the next step that we have to go through? But not not going to talk just about the uh, the Mitchell Report today on the uh, on Baseball America weekly podcast, but we are going to talk about a guy who was in the report, Miguel Tejada, you know, in the news this week in a lot of ways, in the news today for reasons they probably wouldn't like to be in the news, in the news this week, though, before for you know, being traded to the Astros in a, in a, I guess, massive deal in quantity at least, if not quality of the uh, of the trade. It, you know, the Astros farm system didn't have a whole lot before this deal. Now, it sure doesn't have a whole lot, does it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the, the the it seems like the Astros really tried to volume the uh, the Orioles in this trade, and certainly any trade for the Orioles where they get rid of Miguel Tejada. Uh, just about a day or two before this Mitchell report comes out, looks pretty smart right now. Yeah, it looks smart, and they needed to dump his salary. They ju- they're not going to contend this year, no matter no matter what the Orioles r- have expectations for this year. I think it's pretty clear that with the Red Sox, the Yankees in that division, and then the rest of the American League just getting so much stronger, they're n- they're not going to compete this year. They need to have a long term plan, and getting rid of Tejada frees up a, a lot of money. It reduces a big commitment to Tejada, so in that respect, it was good. But in terms of the overall quality of the some of the the top prospects that they got in return, certainly nothing overwhelming when you're right, taking I mean, some of the prospects from the worst farm system in baseball, in my opinion. I mean, Troy Patton could be, you know, he could fit into a rotation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think you're expecting him to replace Eric Bedard if they go, you know, go out and deal Bedard a little later. But he could fit in a rotation. Mike Costanzo is one of those, probably one of the more divisive players around the office. When we're just talking about him. I mean, there are guys here in the office who like him, who think, you know, not think he's going to be a, an all-star by any stretch, but he's got power. He, he's got, you know, he's got an arm. I mean, he's got some, got some potential there. Other guys kind of wonder, okay. If you give him 550 at bats, is he going to strike out 180 times? Is it going to be 200? You know, it does seem like that the main thing out of this for the Orioles is you get free of Miguel Tejada and hey, five rolls of the dice. You know, you've got five guys coming back. Maybe two of them turn into something, then then that's something. But that that Astros top ten list is getting uh, scarier by the day. Yeah, it's it's looking rough, and I think uh, with Tejada is just a perfect example of when you don't want to trade too long to trade a player, because last year I'm sure the Orioles were getting much better offers for Miguel Tejada. At this point, obviously his value is much lower, and if this is the best package they could get, which I assume it was, given that they did make the trade, it's really not quite as palatable as something that they could have received a year ago if they had tried to trade Tejada back then was when his value was a little bit higher. It also spells out the not the danger, but there are a lot of these free agent deals. If you go into a longer term free agent deal, 
you need to go into it a lot of times knowing that there's a pretty good likelihood on the tail end of this that we're going to be you're almost we'll pay you this because we're going to get some good years out of you and then we're going to be stuck with you at the end or close to it and they weren't stuck with Miguel Tejada he wasn't at that point where he's absolutely killing a team but he's definitely not the Miguel Tejada that they signed you know to a free agent deal I mean the bat slows the range gets a little shorter and and you see, I mean, you look at it from the Astros' standpoint, it's interesting to see what they're going to be doing over the next couple of years. I mean, they're in a division where anyone can win it because there is there is no juggernaut. I mean, they're not definitely not in the AL East where you go, okay, well, we got to win 95 games to have a chance. But at the same time, I mean, delete, you know, depleting a farm system that was already depleted doesn't look good for, for 2008 and 2009. Yeah, I, uh, I really... I just didn't get the trade from the Astros' standpoint at all. I, I I understand Miguel Tejada is is a good player, but to take on all of his contract, and you already have one of the weakest farm systems in baseball, and to then just give away five guys who I didn't, none of them, I don't think any of them are elite guys, but to still just trade away that that depth in your farm system to try to win now, and I understand the National League Central is is one of the weaker divisions in baseball, possibly the weakest. But I mean, the Cubs are Cubs are getting better. Uh, they just uh, made a big signing. the The Brewers are they're they're not a bad team either. They this should be good... the year that the Brewers. I mean, if last year they got close, next year may be the year that they take that that Cleveland Indians jump where they go one step further. I mean, because that's a team full of young talent. I mean, and even if you look, you know, the Reds are definitely not there yet. But you look at the Reds' future, and they have a little bit brighter future because they do have a Jay Bruce, a Homer Bailey, a Johnny Cueto getting ready to slot in at the big league level. I mean, they're probably – their hope is is that they're a Brewers light from where the Brewers were two to three years ago, where they got a little more big league talent than the Brewers did at that point. But they have at least some hope for the future. Look at the Astros right now. It's going to be a lot of free agent signings over the next couple of years because there's not a whole lot of hope, it doesn't seem like, in that farm system. Right, and I think that's that's the problem. They got older, and they, at at the same time, dealt away the depth in their farm system. And whether they realistically have a chance to compete for the NL Central is, um, not not very good in my mind. And it's it just seems like they're they're spending a lot of money on talent that's not going to really help them win uh, the next World Championship in Houston. But as uh, as we get ready to wrap up this edition of the Baseball America podcast. To give you a little programming note on the website, we have the the Giants top ten. The last of our National League top ten prospects will go up on the site on Friday, which kind of an exciting day. We'll have a half, you know, really a touch beyond halfway home. Got the American League, which will roll out beginning as essentially the start of New Year. We're going to take the week, you know, we're going to, not going to put any have any chats two days before Christmas or something where a lot of you probably wouldn't be able to to get to that, be a little busy, but. We'll have more top tens rolling out starting uh, the start of the new year. Giants tomorrow with the Andy Baggerly's list, which, speaking of, it, their farm system's improved, but the Giants definitely are also a team that they're maybe next year what the Astros, they're, they're looking at a point where they're really in the middle of a rebuilding process and it's still got a ways to go. I would agree with that. You know, they're, they tried and to build something as long, you know, as long as they had Barry Bonds there and now with Barry gone, They've got pitching, but there's not a whole lot of uh, offense to come there. Yeah, I, th- I think losing Barry Bonds is going to be a pretty dramatic hit to that offense. 
But speaking of guys who were in the Mitchell Report, it all ties in. But, it all uh, comes full circle. But thanks for listening to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. We'll be back again next week uh, at our regularly scheduled time. Thanks a lot, guys.